Good evening. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these people. Pray that your Holy Spirit is here with us, uh, filling us, ministering to us and teaching us the things that uh, you want us to know, the things you want us to learn, the things you want us to change. Pray, Lord, that you would empower us to love people who are unlovable to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Two thousand years ago, there's a rabbi named Jesus. He went up to this mount to teach. And the words that he spoke from that mount have become the most studied and the most written about portion of the most studied and the most written about book in the history of humanity. And in this portion of scripture known as the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus answers many questions for us. And one of the main questions he answers is, how are we to be good people in the eyes of God? And the theme of our series or this topical series is life together. Now, who else to better learn from than Jesus himself? Jesus is the master of living the kind of life to build someone up and in living in community in living life together. So we're going to take a look at some of the virtues of Jesus life and let Jesus define for us what is goodness, what is holiness, what is righteousness, what virtue means. And all those words seem to be lost in our vocabulary today, aren't they? But we're going to look at Jesus who defines for us how a good person lives and what a good person's life looks like. So please turn with me to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. If you want more details, uh, we did a whole series on the Sermon on the Mount about a year ago, and you can listen through that. Uh, we're just going to briefly cover some things and, and mostly about what goodness is. And in the first segment of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins with what we call the Beatitudes. And it reads, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Those are words that people love, that people find inspiring. And I'm not just talking about followers of Jesus either. Most people love those words and they find them inspiring, whether they believe in Jesus or not. And you find those words on bumper stickers or screensavers. And in the next segment of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus draws us a picture of what humankind looks like when it's redeemed. He tells us, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Again, words that people love, words that people find inspiring, words that are put on posters and banners. Then Jesus moves from that segment to talking about sin and how that holds us back. And nobody likes to be held back, right? We hate being held back from things and, and it makes us feel uneasy, but Jesus wants to tell us the truth because the truth will set us free and he knows the severity of sin. So even though the things that he says are tough, he tells us because he loves us and he says, you have heard it said you shall not murder. I say to you, if you are nursing contempt for somebody in your heart, you are not right with God. You have heard it said you shall not commit adultery. I say to you, if you choose to cultivate lust in your heart, you are not right with God. And look at what he says next, because it's pretty shocking. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and dispose of it. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. 
It is better for you to lose part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. Thinking, Jesus, are you serious? Yes. Cut it all off. No. Have you seen that slogan anywhere? Right? That's not one that you put on your screensaver. Right? Get rid of the body part that causes you to sin. You don't find that on a bumper sticker. This seems like pretty hardcore stuff. So what's going on here? Is Jesus really wanting us to dismember our physical bodies in order to grow spiritually? In our new bylaws, um, we we made membership more official. uh, But instead of using the term member, we use the word congregant, but it's virtually the same thing. So so we're making membership a little more formal. But I think that the bylaws are missing something. I think something needs to be added into the bylaw. And I think that what needs to be incorporated in there is dismembership. I heard that guy slander against me. Cut his tongue off. I would love that. Hey, he's coveting my dog. Pluck his eyes out. But Jesus is not telling us to dismember ourselves. In this segment of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is engaged in this fundamental difference between himself and the beliefs held at the time by the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes and the Pharisees saw themselves as righteous and that Jesus was compromising himself. And the scribes and Pharisees, the most religious and the ones who knew the most intellectually about God, defined for themselves and for others what it meant to be good in the eyes of God rather than following God's definition. So Jesus uses this term. The righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees as a description of their beliefs. And we know that Jesus disagreed with them. It's very clear. And isn't that an ironic thing? Jesus disagreed with the very people who were religiously dedicated to being good. Not because the desire to be good is bad. Goodness, righteousness, holiness, being virtuous is not opposed to effort, but it is opposed to earning. How can we earn something that only God has? We're sinful. We are fallen. And yes, we can exercise the desire to be good, but we're fallen people. And once we think we can earn goodness, then we fall into other sins that make us not so good, like pride or partiality or judgment or thinking better of myself than I should. And the scribes and Pharisees knew the law really, really well. They had the Torah, the first five books of the Bible memorized. They had Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, all memorized. And they cherished those books and they loved those books because they believed that God gave instructions through those books to humankind through the people of Israel. But but we humans are fallen. We're sinful. We tend to get sidetracked by things like how to be happy or how to get rich or how to be healthy. But what about what... Jesus was concerned with, like, how can I be good? So what if you're happy, you're rich, you're healthy, but if you're not a good person, who cares? Do you think anyone cares if you have those things, but you're rotten inside and your character amounts to nothing and your soul has no goodness in there? And if there is someone who cares about those things and thinks you're a big deal, God doesn't. The scribes and Pharisees loved and they knew the Torah like some of us today love and we know the Bible. And we know just like the scribes and the Pharisees back then that in the first five books of the Bible contained God's instruction manual about being good. And the problem they had, and I think it's a problem that some of us may have, is that we define goodness by avoidance. Let me explain. 
We think that we are doing good when we don't disobey, when we avoid violating the law. But goodness is not avoiding sin. And I'll use adultery as an example and how some of the scribes and the Pharisees interpreted this at that time. See, we are clearly instructed, you shall not commit adultery. So there were some rabbis back then who thought, you know, if, if I can't see a woman, then I won't lust after her. Then I won't be tempted to commit adultery. And that makes total sense, doesn't it? It's logical. So if they could see a woman out of the corner of their eye, they would just close their eyes shut until they thought the woman moved out of their line of sight. But what would happen if you did that? You'd trip. Right? You'd run into things. So these guys were called the bruised and bleeding rabbis. I'm not making it up. They really existed. Right? They, they tripped all over the place. They got hurt. These were signs of like proving that they were holy. That, hey, look at me. I'm all beat up because I don't look at women. Right? And, and they were trying to be good like this. And it was happening at the time of Jesus. These guys were concerned with behavior modification. Much like what we've concerned ourselves with today in our society. Oftentimes we think about holiness or virtue, goodness, righteousness in terms of behavior modification. Thinking that as long as I'm not involved in restricted things in, in A, B or C, then, then I'm doing OK. Really? That's what you think? Do we think that God is in heaven just with a checklist of our behavior and that he's just this uptight guy up there just watching us, trying to catch us, you know, messing things up? Oh, caught him doing that. That's not right. We get so mechanical about who God is sometimes, don't we? Some of us really think this and some of us are like the scribes and the Pharisees in, in their thought process back in their day. So Jesus comments on this way of thinking. Jesus loves us all. He's our savior and he's the son of God. So he knows a couple of things about how the God, the God, the father thinks his father. And Jesus is the smartest man to ever live and, and the greatest moral thinker to ever live. So he challenges the scribes and Pharisees to think differently. He reasons with the scribes and Pharisees, and he's essentially saying, if God intended for us to be good by avoiding sin, then just chop off any body part that may cause you to do wrong. And then you can roll into heaven this mutilated stump. I think Jesus is pretty funny here. Have any of you guys seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail? Remember that scene when um, King Arthur, you know, he's confronted by the Black Knight. Right. And for, for those of you who haven't seen it, um, it's, it's a comedy. So just put that kind of lens into your head. For those of you who have seen it, you know what I'm talking about. So the Black Knight wants to kill King Arthur. But King Arthur doesn't want to fight him. But, but the Black Knight, he forces the issue, so Arthur has no choice, so he cuts off one of his arms. Right? It's only a flesh wound. So, so then the knight still wants to fight, so Arthur cuts off the other arm. So he still wants to fight, so Arthur cuts off a leg. The Black Knight is still hell-bent on killing Arthur, so he's just hopping along trying to bump him to death with his one leg, right? And then, so Arthur cuts off that leg. So he's just this stump. No appendages. He's still taunting Arthur. It's like, not dead yet. And do you think the Black Knight, the mutilated stump, has changed to being a good man now? A righteous man? A man of virtue? A holy man? He hasn't. 
he still has hate inside of him. He is still a murderer inside of him. He still has hostility, anger inside of him. He would kill Arthur with his teeth if Arthur came close enough and just bite him to death. Nothing's changed. Jesus is saying, if your eye or your hand is the problem, then it makes sense to cut it off. It makes sense. We do this, don't we? Medically speaking, this is done to save someone's physical life, right? If there's a cancer, we cut it out. Or if there's gangrene, we cut it out. So it would make sense if, if cutting something off would save our soul, cut it off. That makes sense. But the problem usually isn't as simple as an eye or a hand. The problem is our heart. It's a heart problem. And you can be a mutilated stump that is still filled with anger or still filled with lust or any other type of darkness, what is on the inside, your heart, is the root of the problem. And until that changes, it will always manifest itself in the actions of our eyes, our mouths, our hands. Your heart will always leak into your actions. There's a story about a guy who attends a a weekly prayer meeting at, at his church where he would say the same exact prayer week after week. He would always pray, fill me, Jesus, fill me, Jesus. And he was just this bitter, grumpy, judgmental, overcritical old man. And he's been that way ever since anyone could remember. But he would always pray the same prayer week after week. Fill me, Jesus, fill me, Jesus. Then one day at the prayer meeting, someone just they were fed up. They had enough. And so they stood up in response to his prayer and they said, Jesus, don't fill him. He leaks. The the things that come out of us, that come out of our heart. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, your idle words will condemn you. The absence of bad doesn't mean that you're good. You can even try to say or do the right things because you're aware that people are listening to what you're saying or watching what you're doing. But eventually what's inside your heart will come out and that is the real you. Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, verses 20 through 22, it is what comes out of people that makes them unclean. So, so don't focus on trying to clean up external behaviors to follow a, mod- a behavior modification plan. That's my excerpt. For from within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. The world is in such a mess because the heart hasn't changed. And there's so much focus on modifying behavior without changing the heart. And there's no way to transform a person if all we focus on is behavior modification. There needs to be a heart change of transformation for transformation. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verses 43 through 45, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Good people bring good things out of the good stored up in their hearts. Evil people bring evil things out of the evil stored up in their hearts. We know we have bad stuff inside of us. And we often think that if we just don't do the things that we want to do, then we're on the right track towards goodness, towards righteousness, towards holiness, towards being virtuous. Let me tell you a story from a book called Frog and Toad Together. It's very... Ever since having kids, you just start reading all these cool books. They bring lots of lessons to you. This is by Arnold Lobel. Toad baked some cookies. These cookies smelled very good, said Toad. He ate one, and they taste even better, he said. Toad ran to Frog's house. Frog, frog, cried Toad. Taste these cookies I have made. 
Frog ate one of the cookies. These are the best cookies I've ever eaten, said Frog. Frog and Toad ate many cookies, one after another. You know, Toad, Frog said with a mouth half full, I think we should stop eating. We will soon be sick. And here's the parable of the human condition. You are right, said Toad. Let us eat one last cookie and then we will stop. <laughs> Frog and Toad ate one last cookie. There were many cookies left in the bowl. Frog said to Toad, let us eat one very last cookie and then we will stop. Frog and Toad ate one very last cookie. We must stop eating, cried Toad as he ate another. Yes, said Frog, reaching for a cookie. We need willpower. What is willpower, asked Toad. Willpower is trying very hard not to do something you really want to do. You mean like trying hard not to eat all these cookies, asked Toad. Right, said Frog. Frog put the cookies in a box. There, he said, now we will not eat any more cookies, but we can open the box, said Toad. That is true, said Frog. Frog tied some string around the box. There, he said, now we will not eat any more cookies, but we can cut the string and open the box, said Toad. That is true, said Frog. Frog got a ladder. He put the ladder up on a high shelf. There, he said, now we will not eat any more cookies, but we can climb the ladder, take the box down from the shelf, cut the string and open the box, said Toad. That is true, said Frog. Frog climbed the ladder, took the box down, cut the string, opened the box. He took the box outside. He shouted in a loud voice, hey, birds, here are cookies. Birds came from everywhere. They picked up all the cookies in their beaks and flew away. Now we have no more cookies to eat, said Frog or said Toad. Not even one. Yes, said Frog, but we have lots and lots of willpower. You may keep it all, Frog said Toad. I'm going home now to bake a cake. <laughs> the problem with willpower is it doesn't change the heart. In order to change your heart about cookies, you need something that is better than cookies. You need something that you want more than cookies. You need a vision that is something that is grander than cookies. That's our only hope. Willpower does not do that for us. To be righteous or holy or virtuous or good doesn't mean I get really good at not doing things I really want to do. That's not what it means. It means it doesn't mean I've mastered my willpower to overcome my desires. That's so focused on yourself anyway, isn't it? Where, where's God in that? To be holy, to be good, righteous, virtuous means that I'm the kind of person who actually wants to do what is virtuous that wants to do what is right, what is good, what is noble, what is beautiful, what is holy, what is true. And our heart yearns to be good. We all want to do right. And Jesus is fully aware of this. That's why Jesus looks to the root of who we are, our heart. He's looking for more than behavior modification. He's looking for us to become the kind of person who actually wants to do right. That's holiness. We don't have to come up with this behavior modification plan. The, the goodness, the righteousness, the holiness, the virtue that describes the Pharisees weren't always matters of the heart. They were often based off of things that they did thinking that they could earn their goodness. They could earn their righteousness. They thought that they could persuade or coax God and others to believe that they were more than they actually were. 
And they thought they were in control of their lives. And they could control what they really wanted to do and, and really didn't want to do. God isn't simply just interested in changing your circumstances and the conditions of your life. What God wants to do is to change you. He wants to change you, not just your situations. And God wants to change the inside of who you are so that you become the kind of person who naturally does good things with His help and He's with you. He wants to be with you. He's not interested in you trying to be holy on your own. We can't have holiness with anything else but God. Nothing else is going to work. God's invitation is, abide in me as I abide in you, just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you. John chapter 15, verse 4. And in other words, you'll never be capable of making changes to your heart. You can't do it yourself. You are incapable of doing good on your own unless you abide in Jesus. Jesus' invitation is to be his student. To talk with him, asking him for his help, to be his friend and companion through life together. That's holiness. Let me share with you two things to help carry out this development of holiness, which is essential in living life together, which is essential in living in community. This is something that we can do through our effort. Not that it can be earned, because holiness cannot be earned. It's opposed to earning, but it isn't opposed to effort. We can't change our hearts by ourselves, but we can put forth effort. There's something that we can do. And as we seek to live life together, I want to share just these two things and we'll end this session by participating in one of those things. And the first thing is obedience. Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Obedience, that you will actually do the things that he instructed us for us to do. Shortly after graduating college, a mentor of mine gave me some books. And the first ones he gave me were from this author by the name of George MacDonald, who wrote this. At the end of the day, it's good to ask a question. What did I seek to do today just because Jesus said to do it? If I want to be one of Jesus' Talmudim, one of his disciples, then sometimes I have to do the things that he says. So what does Jesus say? One of the things Jesus says is found in Matthew chapter 15, verse 11, that it is not what goes into someone's mouth that defiles him or her, but what comes out of the mouth. James said that anyone who is never at fault in speaking is perfectly mature. James chapter 3, verse 2. Are any of us there yet? Any of us perfectly mature when it comes to our mouth? So I have something for us to do for the rest of the day. Um, So for the next 24 hours, try to do this. And this comes from Richard Foster, who was an adjunct professor of mine in college. He, He writes, starting today, go 24 hours without saying anything negative, anything dishonest, no complaining, no whining, no gossip, no excuses, no minimization, no rationalization, no denial, no defensiveness, no blaming. Don't pass judgment. This includes body language, no eye rolling. No size of exasperation, no cold shoulders, no clucking of the tongue. For 24 hours, assume the world can exist without you correcting everybody and managing the flow of information. What do you think about that? 
That's going to be really hard for some of us, isn't it? Some of you are thinking that's impossible. Probably is impossible. We're so accustomed to these bad habitual patterns that are in the way we we communicate, whether verbally or non-verbally. They're just bad ways that we communicate to one another that's so deeply rooted that it's really tough for us to change. And our will, our willpower to just decide on our own that we're not going to do something anymore can't completely help us overcome our biggest issues. It's delusional to think that through our will we can overcome who we actually are. Who we are on the inside. Our deeply rooted habits and attitudes are only changed when we've submitted ourselves to being transformed to God. To let go of our will and abide in Jesus. To continuously and consistently seek to do the things that He has instructed us to do. The second thing I want to share to help carry out this development of holiness is confession. So we have this confession booth? No. When, when we try to obey through our own willpower, we, we come to the realization that it's really difficult for us to change ourselves if it's not impossible to change ourselves. So we need to confess. Confession breaks pride. It helps us come to the realization that we need God, that the cross was actually necessary. And we often try hiding our sins, don't we? There's this video, I don't know if you guys have seen it on YouTube. I think it's fake, because the leg on it looks fake. Maybe some of you know what I'm talking about. But it's two penguins, so one of them is just kind of innocently walking by, and the other one is standing by this like thin piece of ice. And then this unsuspecting one walks by the standing one, and, and the standing one sticks out its foot, and then the, the poor guy falls into this thin layer of freezing ice water. And, and the standing penguin doesn't react at all. It's just there. Stuck its foot out and put it back in. There's no movement. There's no look around like ah, who's, who, who saw me. N- nothing. As if nothing happened. And that he would never do anything bad. And this is humanity. This is sin. This is humanity and the tendency to hide from sin. This is the sinful condition of humankind. There are times we want to be able to hurt others. But we don't want anyone else to know about it. We want people to give us a pat on the back or give us props for certain things. We want to look good in front of others. We want to have what we want, even though we compromise our integrity and our character. But at the same time, we don't want people to know what we did to get what we want. And we do things that we shouldn't do to get things that we have to have to impress people we don't really even care about. So imagine if all of our sin was made available for everyone to see. What if all of our badness, all of our darkness, not just what we did and and what we said, but also our thoughts were out in the open for everyone to see? And since they aren't, we, we tend to think that if we don't get caught, then it really doesn't matter. But it does. It does matter. It matters because we don't just live in a physical and an emotional world. We live in a spiritual world where who we are matters because it harms people, it rots our souls, and it hurts God. It matters. So we have confession. James tells us in James chapter 5, verse 16, confess your sins to one another. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes these words. He who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. It may be the Christians, notwithstanding corporate worship, common prayer, all their fellowship and service may still be left to their aloneness. The final breakthrough to communion, 
to community does not occur because although they have fellowship with each other as believers and as devout people, they do not have fellowship as the undevout, as sinners. The pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner. So everyone must conceal his sin from himself and from the community. We dare not be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. So we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. That's in his book, Life Together. Our church, our various ministry groups, our marriages, our friendships suffer when sin gets into them. And we also die on the inside ourselves. And you look at church history and you'll notice that whenever the spirit of God is is moving, that confession is one of the things that occurs. People are vulnerable. People come out from hiding. And instead of pointing out everyone else's faults, they they come out and the priority is dealing with themselves. During John Wesley's time, in order to be part of the Wesleyan group, there were questions you had to answer before joining. So listen to these questions. Do you have forgiveness of your sins and peace with God? Do you desire to be told of your faults? Do you desire to be told of all of your faults and told plainly and clearly? Does any sin, inward or outward, have dominion over you? Do you desire that every one of us should tell you from time to time whatsoever is in his heart concerning you? Consider, do you desire that we should tell you whatsoever we think, whatsoever we fear, whatsoever we hear concerning you? Do you desire that in doing this we should come as close as possible, we should cut to the quick and search your heart to the bottom? Is it your desire to be on this and all other occasions entirely open and speak everything that is in your heart without exception, without disguise, without reserve? I thought our application was pretty easy. I think we asked like three or no, two questions. Imagine answering these questions. These are some pretty vulnerable questions. Imagine being that open to your respective groups. And they did this in Wesley's day. And and there were thousands who agreed to come into a community like this with such openness. And this is so foreign to some of us. We want to separate our personal life and our spiritual life. But it's not meant to be separated. There is power in living free. To be free, to exercise freedom in living in community with God and with one another where we don't have to hide who we really are. And it's so important to live freely with one another and not hide who we are. We are fallen. And that's not to say that we should flaunt it, but we surely shouldn't hide it. We need to deal with it. And living life together successfully, thriving in community is really hard to do if we hide who we really are. So we're going to give confession a try this evening with our Heads bowed and eyes closed. I want to run through some sins that some of us may be struggling with. So we can start by asking God to help us. And it might be uncomfortable for some of us, but let's just give it a try because it's important in in our transformation. And it's important in how we go about living life together. Let's ask God to examine our hearts and to reveal to us what he sees in us. And as those things are revealed to us, confess those things to him and ask him to forgive you. And as we do this, know that you are holy. We are righteous in the eyes of God because of what Jesus has already done for us on the cross and resurrecting. So ask God, where does my heart need cleansing? And ask him to show you.
And perhaps you have anger, bitterness, resentment inside of your heart. And it's time to let that go. To confess it and let God know that you don't want to carry around that sin anymore. Perhaps there's a sexual sin you're dealing with or a lust that has a strong grip in your heart. Maybe there are things in your past uh, regarding this issue and, and they continue to haunt you or you're in so deep into this sin that it, it, it's become an addiction and that you can't get out of it. And you feel like you can't confess it freely because there's just too much shame. There's too much embarrassment. Or maybe you're living with someone you're not married to. Or maybe you're fornicating. Or maybe you've had an affair or you're having one. And it's time to come clean. It's time to tell God and to rethink how you're going to proceed with a holy life. In a group this size, there's no doubt that there are struggles with anger. There are struggles with lust. And there's conviction now from the Holy Spirit regarding these sins. And please know that these aren't things that are mentioned to bring about condemnation to you. God wants to free you. To live a life where you don't have to hide and that you can deal with reality. What about greed? Do you have greed in your heart? See, our world is so materialistic, especially in the United States, particularly in the Bay Area. We have so much stuff and we always want more and more. And it's always for me, me, me. And we tend to struggle with generosity. We tend not to give as much as we know what God wants us to give. Now is the time to tell God if your heart is greedy and if you lack generosity for those who don't have. And this is a good lead to bring up covetousness and envy. Perhaps you want someone else's life, someone else's marriage, their career, uh, their family, their wealth, their intelligence, their success, their looks, their whatever. It's, tell, it's time to tell God of, of your covetous and your envious heart. Or maybe, maybe you struggle with dishonesty. And there may be some shame or embarrassment there that you've hidden what you've done or, or what you are doing. Maybe you haven't been totally truthful to get out some of the problems, to get out of some of the problems you're trying to avoid or for whatever reasons. Uh, you aren't being totally honest. It's time to confess and bring those things out to the open. And perhaps you have a heart that is judgmental and critical of others. Perhaps you struggle with being self-righteous and have a, a spiritual arrogance about you. There might even be some jealousy in there. Maybe you've noticed that people around you don't like to be judged and they don't like to be criticized. Maybe it's time to bring it to God to change your heart towards others. There are many other things that we can mention as far as the darkness and the sin in our, in our hearts. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you, to minister to you, and bring those things to God and open your heart to letting Him change it. And for Him to transform us into holy people, into good people. Let's pray. Lord, as you are ministering to each one of us individually and showing us the things that are deep down inside that we have to confess to you to make us more whole, to make us more healthy, to make us good people. I ask God that there wouldn't be a sense of fear or shame or embarrassment that we could actually deal with the real things in us to draw us closer to you and not have any sort of obstacle between a relationship between ourselves and God and ourselves and each other as a community. I ask God that you would fill us with grace and mercy and understanding, patience, 
we shouldn't be surprised that we are sinners. We know that. But I ask God that we would understand that more fully and not to just accept it and flaunt it, but so that we can deal with it in a more real way. In Jesus' name, amen.